Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. I wanted you to flip open to Psalm 53, and I just simply wanted you to take a look at one little line because that's going to be the basis for our entire sermon today. I want you to see ultimately what God says of the man who denies the existence of God. That first line in Psalm 53 really is the linchpin to the entire thing. And everything else that David has to say as a result of this really flows from this reality. In other words, the first and foremost mark of one that the Bible would call a fool is one who says there is no God. That one little statement has rather profound implications on us all, though. It colors how we view mankind, how we understand our neighbors, our sons, our daughters, our spouse, everybody else that you interact with on a daily basis who is not in Christ, but it also affects how we relate to one another as the church. It bears consequences on whether or not you and I will simply believe what the scriptures consider a wise man or the fool, but it impacts how you live your daily life as well. The temptations, loves, and ideas of the fool are the same temptations, loves, and ideas that are common to every single man that we are bombarded with every day of the week. And so what we need to be able to do is look at the fool and call a spade a spade, at least as the Bible would have it. And the reason why is relatively simple. If you can understand that the rejection of God is ultimately the height of folly, you can avoid falling into the same folly as the unbelieving world. The same reality is true for what God considers what he would call foolishness. And what I mean by that is very, very simple. There is one way in which you will go that could be considered the wise man and the other way that you will go that can be considered the foolish man. And so wisdom and folly are bound up in these same realities. To put it as bluntly as I possibly can and to steal a line from Matthew Henry from last week, there is no middle ground. There's no marketplace of ideas. There's no ultimate wisdom that this world has to offer, and there's really no equivocating when it comes to that reality. We either accept it or we deny it. But the one thing we cannot do, beloved, and I mean this, we cannot do it, is pretend as if God hasn't spoken. When David tells us the fool has said in his heart there is no God, he's not merely identifying a character flaw. The fool is not someone who just needs a little bit more evidence. He's not somebody who needs to be nudged in the right direction. They're not a person that you can even woo into the kingdom of God because you are the height of winsomeness. Ultimately, foolishness is what dominates and defines every aspect of who they are. Now, put that to a theological term, it is what would be called an ontological reality, meaning it is every bit of what makes them tick. It is what makes them who they are. The fool is not one who merely makes unwise choices from time to time, but that his entire life is defined by unwisdom, or a lack of wisdom, rather. And yet they willingly and knowingly and deliberately do it. 
They reject God and his commands because it is in their nature to do so. Much like a duck is a duck by nature or by virtue of the fact that it is a duck and it cannot be any other thing, the same reality is true for the one who rejects God in his heart. He is a fool, and by nature he cannot do any other thing than be a fool. My point in this is incredibly simple, but it is one that you and I need to seriously consider simply because we so often ignore it. What I mean by that is that what we tend to do is look on the outward appearance of a man. We consider their actions or their intellect, their vast amounts of money in the bank, the fact that they are successful in what they put their hands to, and we decide whether or not these are the things that we're going to look at and deduce whether or not we should respect them. We give them a place of honor and influence in our lives that they do not simply deserve, and we do so because we have not really grasped the reality of what it means for them to be called a fool by God himself. Seldom do we esteem a godly man because he is simply exceedingly godly and faithful. Seldom do we do that. We often overlook those who are the very embodiment of what it means to be a faithful Christian, one that loves the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul, as the scriptures would say, and it's because we don't take God seriously enough when he says that the fool is one who goes his own way. Instead, we consider, again, their influence their ability to speak with eloquence, the fact that they have power and prestige, or perhaps, again, that they are a successful businessman. And we fall right into the same exact trap that the rest of the world embraces when we believe they actually have something to offer us. To make that perfectly clear, we prioritize what God has said is folly. We prioritize that which he says is perishing away with this age. Here's an example of what I mean by that. And I'll ask it just in the form of a question. Do you believe, really, in your heart of hearts, do you believe for a moment that a vile man who rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can in any way, shape, or form change the very real problem we have in our country? Do you believe that they will help you? Do you believe that they even care about you? Beloved, just because they so happen to align with you politically or socially or in any other thing doesn't really make a big deal at the end of the day if God has called them a fool. Do you esteem men like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Elon Musk, or whoever it is that you esteem? doesn't have to be any of those three. Do you think they will accomplish anything of eternal value when they reject Jesus Christ? They cannot. They are no closer to the kingdom than any other person they rage against on a daily basis. Everything that defines a man, as scriptures would say, is born out of his rejection of God and his ways. Everything. He says, this is why he's given over to folly. He's incapable of producing the wisdom of God. And no matter how, may, how close he may come to saying the same things as scripture, ultimately it is always for nefarious ends. It is always for his own wisdom's sake or his own being's sake. He will never act out of a love for God and his word. He will never think of you. He will never conduct himself in a way that pleases God, literally because he cannot do so. He has no practical skill to live in such a way, but he doesn't even think in such a way. The reason for it is very, very simple. The scriptures just say that the one who rejects God in his heart is a fool. 
It's all because they reject the one who made them. But understand, this is not a reality contained to just a few notable individuals, celebrities, and your friends. This is a condition of every last man, woman, and child on the face of the planet apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Altogether, Paul says in Romans 3, they are bound in foolishness. They are given over to their folly. He quotes this psalm to demonstrate that. His whole point is just to show that the human race is utterly useless at the end of the day because they have all gone their own way. And he summarizes it by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's the same exact thing we see David saying here. It's the linchpin to it all. The fool in his heart says, there is no God. And the reality that David speaks to in this one little line is surpassing everything that you and I so often hold dear and believe. Because what he does is he just levels the playing field and says, every last one of them are fools. And they do as the fool does best. So the question that simply comes down to you and I at the end of the day is, do we actually believe this reality? Do we take God seriously when he says that this unbeliever, whoever they may be, at the end of the day, their heart is bound and given over to the reality of folly? Do we believe that? If we do, we will order our lives in the pursuit of what God has said is wisdom. It will actually have practical implications, and we will forgo and forsake the folly of this age. What we're going to do today is a little bit different in one sense, that we're still going to be looking at the text left and right, but understand, I'm, I'm camping on that one line. We're going to stay on one little line because it really is the wellspring from which everything else flows. I started to write my sermon this week. This just gives you a reason why and how I think. And I sat down and literally, when I saw the fool in his heart says there is no God, I wrote a third of my sermon. And I still had more to say. And Matt Henry just looked at me and said, why don't you just preach a whole sermon on it? And I'm like, I can do that. And so today that's what we're going to do. But why stay here? Why camp on that one little line? Beloved, this is why the world is the way it is. This is why if you're a genuine Christian, you will never quite fit into the mold no matter where you go because you are always in one way, shape, form, or another having to interact with those whom God has called fools. This is why you stick out like a sore thumb if you are faithful and love the Lord. What we're going to do is just simply study the absolute folly of unbelief today. And we're going to see it play out in three different acts, if you will. So picture it like a stage play. The first act will simply be atheism explored. And what we're going to do is just look at a few different ways this common reality is expressed. The second act will be atheism exposed, and we're going to see just how brutally honest Scripture really is with this reality. I mean, God literally pulls no punches. But the third and final act is what I'm going to call atheism eradicated, which is to say that there are no atheists in hell. There is no unbelief at the end of all days. In all three acts, beloved, the reality is much the same. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And so let's just take a brief foray into the world of unbelief. I'm going to start with what many would call the intellectual atheist. Well, the intellectual atheist is one who, for whatever reason, claims to reject the 
God who is on the basis of pure reason and fashion or factual deduction, rather, rationalism. Every bit of what they see in front of their eyes, they reject, and they say that there are, are though, many great arguments that abound for it. What they desire is evidence. What they desire is proof. In other words, they refuse to believe in the one true God because on the if you look at the natural world around you, they say that God has not made himself known clearly. He has not furnished enough proof for them to come and worship him. And so they look at it and say there is no God, let alone the God of the Bible. And make no mistake, this kind of often is a very rigorous and studious kind of unbelief because they will devour book after book and listen to lecture after lecture. They will study world religions and compare and contrast. And at the end of the day, what they do is they ultimately decide that humanity invented religion to find purpose or meaning. And so in one fell swoop, you can just dismiss all of it out of hand. And as a result, really what they're left with are two conclusions, at least if they're going to be following it naturally and logically. They're either going to embrace what's called humanism or nihilism. A humanism, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. It's simply the belief that mankind is innately good, and it emphasizes that the highest good you can do is in this life. So you want to be good to your fellow man at the end of the day. It's a belief there's no such thing as eternity, and therefore your ultimate purpose is bound up in this reality, meaning that you ought to cause human flourishing as much as you possibly can. Well, the problem with this is that it's a bold-faced lie, and we all know it. I tell you what, if you believe mankind is generally good, tonight I will drive you down to the heart of the ghetto in Chicago, and when you get shot, you can come back and tell me how innately good mankind is. Or we can simply go to Children's Memorial, and you can provide for me a consistent answer on the reason for human suffering and tragedy in this life. Really, I mean, if it's, if it's all about flourishing, then why do innocent children likely die? They won't spend Christmas with their families. You can go to me or go with me to the funeral parlor and you can see the ugliness of their death on full display. And then you can give me an answer. Why is this so? No matter how much people may say to, that mankind is basically good or that our purpose is human flourishing, the reality of this world just shatters that to pieces, doesn't it? The way the world works is that life is hard. It often gets harder and try as you might. You will never see utopia on earth. But even if you did, in the end, you'll go to your death just like everybody else. And what will happen at the end of all days is that somebody will come along and mess it all up just again. That's the world we live in. It is brutal and unflinching. And if you're honest with yourself, the other position that you'll embrace simply if you're consistent is nihilism. Nihilism is that belief that there's just nothing with real purpose. There's no ultimate meaning to life. There's no real reason why you should do good. All you have is your life. And even in that, there's the sense where your hard work, your plans, your dreams are all pointless because all of that will go right down into the grave with you at the end of all days too. Humanity will still do evil. You'll be forgotten shortly after you die. So making a name for yourself means nothing at all. You and everyone else in the world will dissolve into nothingness. And so your death is just as pointless as your life. That's nihilism. And you can't really get mad about any of it because stardust just does what stardust does. If it's all random chaotic chance, you can't be mad about it. The problem, again, is that this is just a bold-faced lie. 
And every single person in this room knows that right now because everybody knows that there is a purpose and meaning behind life. And we know that because every last one of you is spending your time chasing after things to try and fill that void of purposelessness. No matter how you stretch it, no matter where you land on either of these two realities, the so-called intellectual atheist still has a God they worship. You either worship humanity in general or you worship yourself. That's the reality at hand. But most people are not the intellectual atheist. Understand that. Most people are the lazy atheist. The lazy atheist is one who wants the appearance of being the intellectual, but at the end of the day, they just don't want the hard work that comes with it. And so what happens is, for them, claiming atheism is merely this get-out-of-jail-free card. When the conversation gets a little dicey, you can play it, and then you can avoid all the awkward conversations. You don't have to deal with mom and dad. You don't have to deal with sin. You don't have to deal with the reality that there is a judgment coming. You can play the trump card, and you can walk away basically unscathed. The problem with the lazy atheist is that it's just as much as a lie as the intellectual atheist. Right? The reality is you're just a bold-faced liar in front of everyone else because you're not really an intellectual atheist. You haven't done any of the hard work. You're not even one who's read the Bible. All you want to do is reject it because you just want to avoid it. The reality is that they haven't poured every fiber of their being into studying the Bible, let alone all the other various things that they claim is what is proof against the existence of God. At the end of the day, they simply reject him because they don't want to order their lives in submission to him. There's some personal sin they treasure, some way of life they don't want to give up, or even some sense of fairness that they believe that God has violated If you press anyone who claims to be an atheist hard enough, this is ultimately where they land. I thought I was the quote-unquote intellectual atheist, but the reality is I just hated God, and I loved my sin. And even though I studied book after book after book, the reality was I wanted to suppress the truth in my unrighteousness simply because I didn't want to have to deal with who God was and what claims he made on my life. If you've watched any of the major contenders of intellectual atheism, as it's called, They always, and I do mean always, do this, where they will land on a hatred and reveal their hatred for God and his commands. At the end of the day, they disagree with God. And therefore, God is this malevolent bully, as they will call him. He's this cosmic, philicidal child abuser. It's foolishness. It's what the Bible would call folly. And it's not because they've studied the Bible and found it wanting. It's not because they have searched high and low for God and they found no proof of his existence. It's not because they even want to be wise. At the end of the day, it is ultimately because they do not love God, but in fact, they hate him. And they scurry away from the light of Jesus Christ because they love the darkness. And then finally, you have the practical atheist. And this is probably the the widest gamut of all of them. They are the one who live without any reference to God. They might vaguely follow some religion or they're vaguely spiritual, but at the end of the day, they just live their ordinary lives as if God doesn't exist or really care about anything they do. They don't consider God in their plans. They don't give much of a passing thought to God. All they do is live day after day on a day-to-day basis without being even remotely mindful of what God has said in his word or who God is. 
Again, you can be vaguely spiritual, you can follow another world religion, but you can also be the Christian or the one who claims to be the Christian and refuses to submit yourself to God and his commands. And let me just be blunt. This is the vast majority of American evangelicalism today. Some of you here are this. You claim Christ, you show up to church every week, and yet your life bears little to no resemblance of what it means to follow Christ. You conduct your private life separately from your religious life, and you are very religious, at least before the face of other men, but you really are just a liar. The scriptures are just brutal with this, beloved. Remember as I preached the minor prophets, if you were here for that? This was what they got judged for. Again, you may claim God is one, but even the demons do this. And yet they shudder. If you're the practical atheist, you're no closer to the kingdom of God than the most rock-ribbed atheist. Just let's put it all out there for that. You still have yet to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You still have yet to repent and follow him, and you're no closer to the kingdom, even though you're on its doorstep by coming here each and every week. And if you think I'm being harsh here, this is literally what David has in mind as he's writing this psalm. What he's identifying is not merely the one who rejects God on an intellectual basis, but the one who lives as if there is no God. That's really why I wanted to preach an entire sermon on just this one little line, because you don't have to be the guy who shouts from the rooftops that you don't believe in the quote-unquote magic sky daddy, if you will, to be labeled an atheist. Just like the intellectual atheist, just like the lazy atheist, the practical atheist is one who says in their heart, of hearts, there is no God, and they are fools. But notice where he says this problem starts from. No matter what flavor you may choose, it stems from the heart. Always. Always and ever, it will always go to the heart. Scripture exposes unbelief for what it is, its foolishness, but it does so because it reveals our hearts before the face of God who sees all, knows all, and understands all. God looks beyond our feeble attempts, in other words, to make excuses for why we don't believe, and he just lays our hearts bare and says, you are not one who believes. This is now where we move to our second act of the story, and that's atheism exposed. And what I want to do here is just draw out the reality behind why this is so. Right? Why is the text just so brutal about the condition of every last man, woman, and child apart from the grace of God in Christ. It's important we get this. It really, really is. When scripture speaks to the heart of man, understand what it's identifying here is that it's talking about the seed of your emotions. And it's not talking about the way you feel, but it's talking about the way that you think your choices and every bit of who you are. It's talking about everything that makes you, again, who you are. The heart is the foundation of all that you believe, all that you hope in. It informs what you believe, why you believe it, why you even act on it, the intent behind your thoughts. All of that is driven or born out of the heart. And your choices, the things you love, the things that preoccupy your minds on a daily basis are all born from the same place. That's the reality that he's identifying here when he says it comes from the heart. This is the thing that the prophet Jeremiah has said is deceived above all else and desperately sick it or sick. 
At the deepest level, in other words, of who we are, our mind, emotions, desires, apart from the grace of God, have been marred beyond repair due to the power and presence of sin. This, in other words, is what binds us to our folly if we are the one who is an unbeliever. The larger problem is that scripture would also just say that we're blind to that reality. We just don't see it. We don't even see how truly sinful our hearts can be even after coming to Christ because we're still sown in this body that's perishable. But know that at the end of the day, God is never hoodwinked by this. God knows the secrets of the heart. He deliberately exposes our hearts. And he does so in a really profound and simple way. He just lets us do what we do best. Right? Our own actions, our own words will come out and eventually expose us because we expose ourselves and we're really, really good at it. And the reason for this is simple. Everything flows from the heart. We can't help but have it bubble up and flow. Jesus says that it's not what goes into man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. Right? For out of the heart come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, sensuality, envy, envy, slander, pride, and even foolishness. In other words, all the sins that we commit are just a revelation of what's already inside of us. They just give the opportunity for all that to come out. We don't sin because we're provoked to do so at the end of the day. We sin because it's actually what's stored up and comes bubbling out when the occasion is ripe for it. But Christ went even further than this, didn't he? Matthew 12, right? He says that the heart exposes what it is we truly love and who we truly are. If you can make your way there, please go ahead. Matthew 12, 33 through 35. Notice what Jesus says here. Again, 12, verses 33 through 35. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good. He's talking about people here. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. He then goes on to just simply say that everything will be revealed at the last day and man will be judged on the basis of what he speaks. The point he makes here is very, very simple. What the tree is made of, in other words, will determine the fruit that it bears. But notice the basis of the judgment. It's on the words they speak. He says one word, one's words reveal what they truly hope in, believe, and even love. They can't help but have that exposed when they speak. That's the reality of our hearts. He says that the unbelieving heart or, and even the believing heart, whatever is in store there will just come out. You can't help it. You don't need a man to speak or I should say rather do much to see that he's a lover of sin and wickedness. All you need to do is listen to him speak. Again, if you want to determine what another man's treasure is, simply let him speak and ask him questions. They may put on a facade, but eventually what's in their heart will come out. It'll overflow. What they love will be revealed because they can't help it. You and I can't help it. What you and I treasure will always come bubbling to the surface. And the point I'm making here is actually very, very simple. But once you get somebody to talk enough, all the 
excuses and reasons that we tend to gravitate towards to reject God or reject his ways will inevitably just go away. What will come out will be what it is we truly believe and what we truly hope in and what we truly love. You'll find out all the arguments, time spent debating different aspects of the Christian faith like creationism or whatever else that you want to go towards will just be fruitless because it'll all boil down to one simple reality. The reason they reject God is that they worship something else. They worship something else. Let's go to Romans 1. I want you to see this as well. This is where the Apostle Paul just gets exceedingly brutal. What we're going to do is simply take a brief walk through the text, but I want to show you that ultimately unbelief is, it's nothing more than the willful suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, meaning it's nothing more than just pushing it down, but it also has some consequences. It produces something, in other words. It produces nothing more than idolatry and foolishness and a love of sin. Notice how God just exposes the true folly of unbelief here in Romans 1, starting with verse 18. Many of you have heard this passage before, but I want you to understand the first point that he makes here is that God has deliberately revealed himself to every man, right? That's what he starts about in verse 18. Notice here, Paul tells us God has revealed his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and also the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So notice what it's saying, though. God has made it clear, in other words, that there is a day of judgment coming for sin. He's revealed that. No man will be able to say on that day there will be no punishment for sin. They can't claim they didn't understand sin to be sin. No matter how many times they try to tell you that, things like homosexuality, lying, thievery, whatever else they want to support, no matter how many times they try to do that and twist the scriptures, God says he's revealed all of that to them. No matter what. It doesn't matter if they even feel guilt over it. God has revealed it to them. They can outright deny it. They could say, I don't feel any guilt over it. They could simply look at it and say, I don't believe that's sin. But God has made all unrighteousness known. Notice what the fool does with this knowledge, though. Keep looking at the text here. He says, man actively suppresses the knowledge of God's wrath against sin in their unrighteousness. It's just brutal. Again, he says, they hear the truth about sin and judgment, but what they do with it is that they just simply push it down. And it's an act of rebellion. It's an act of suppression. It's not that they somehow think differently. The reality is that they hear it, they accept it as true, and then they squash it down so they can do what they want to do. They don't misunderstand it. They don't need more knowledge. They don't even reject it because ultimately they can't. They literally seek to conceal the knowledge of God and his wrath against sin. Why? Because they want their sin. So if you're wondering why people give approval to the various things in our day, the sins du jour, if you will, this is the reason why. They hear it, they know it to be true, they know it brings death, and yet they are the ones who give hearty approval to it, all because they reject their maker and they suppress the truth about God and what he's revealed about sin in their unrighteousness. They rejoice in what's evil, beloved. If you're the person who rejects God, understand truth remains true whether or not you want to believe it. 
None of that changes the fact that it's true. You can push it down, but that doesn't change anything. Notice why, though. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Why? For this reason. For God has made it evident to them. It's the same reality Ecclesiastes speaks to when it says that God has stamped eternity on the hearts of all men. Right inwardly, in the very core of who you are, again, in your heart, God has made himself known to you, and he has done so very, very clearly. He's not hidden himself. He's not hoodwinked you or deceived you in any way. From the very first moment of your existence, he has stamped eternity on your heart so that you may know him and worship him. So if you demand absolute proof that God exists, the only thing that you're showing is that you've suppressed the truth in your unrighteousness. The reason I can say all this is not just because you have this inward knowledge of God, but that everything around you also reveals this fact. <clears throat> right? Verse 20 tells us this. It tells us creation itself not only reveals the fact that God exists, but it actually reveals something very, very specific about this God, doesn't it? It's not just this general broad knowledge of there being a God, but that God's invisible attributes are being shown and demonstrated to all mankind as they simply look about nature. More specifically, creation shows us God's eternal power and his divine nature, meaning you cannot possibly look at any square inch of creation and rationally reject your creator. It just simply cannot be done. The reason why, again, God has shown all this inwardly and outwardly so that all are without excuse on the day of judgment. From the single-celled organism to the most complex organism, from the deepest parts of the earth to the vastness of the heavens, every bit of creation reveals that if you reject God, you have only rebelled against common sense. No one rejects God on the basis of intellectual grounds. I was that man who thought I did so. What I was was just simply a fool. If you believe you're the rational atheist, understand that just like I was, you only desire to maintain your rebellion against your creator. Scripture says he has revealed himself to all mankind, both in their hearts and in nature itself, so that you cannot reject him. You cannot claim otherwise on that final fateful day that you stand before the living God and must face an account. But that's also not without consequence in the here and now. Nor are you somehow less of a worshiper. Really understand that. If you reject God, you're not a free thinker. You're not a free thinker. You're not even your own man. You are literally the one who has been handed over to your foolishness and rebellion as a result of your willful suppression of the truth. And that's what Paul just lays out in the rest of this chapter here. Now, picking back up in Romans one twenty one, notice how God really exposes the true folly of atheism or unbelief because of what it produces. It's sin and idolatry. Right, look down with me. Paul writes, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. 
but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of bird and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why? For this reason. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice the flow of his argument here. Verse 21 reveals, this is simply the grand sin of mankind, by the way, that they did not honor God or give him thanks as their creator. We tend to think that you have to do something really bad to deserve hell, but this is all you have to do. All you have to do is live a life in which you do not honor your creator as God or give him thanks. In other words, you're just simply mindless of your God, the one who created you. But then notice there's a result of this in verses 21 and 22. He says, ultimately, the one who rejects God, the one who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, even though they know God exists, they are ultimately one who become a pointless speculator. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They become an intellectual fool, if you will. And they become idolaters, as he says in verse 23. They worship everything in creation rather than the one who stands above creation. All of this because they suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. But it's not done here. He keeps going. Verses 24 and 25, he says, God literally gives them over to the impurity of their sinful lusts of the heart. So in other words, everything that God calls sin will become the fool's God instead of the blessed creator. And from this point on to the end of the chapter, Paul just lists the ways that this will play out. Right, the gist of it is this. You want to reject God. You want to deny that his wrath is being revealed against all unrighteousness from heaven. God looks down and simply says to you, fine. I'll give you exactly what you want. I will now hand you over to your rebellion. And it's just brutal. Nothing is free No one becomes free from the shackles of religion, so to speak. Nobody is the captain of their own fate or the master of their own destiny. What they're doing is still worshiping, but they're worshiping that which is destined to perish, destined to be destroyed on that last day. He says your entire life, if you are the one who is the unbeliever, will be given over to folly because you will become a slave to the very things that you believe set you free. And that's all of mankind apart from Christ. That's how bleak it is. This is 1 John 2.15. He says the same kind of reality here, but he talks about why Christians ought not love or not ought not to love the world. He speaks of the love of the world, not as identifying just the things of this world, right? It's not talking about just a love of money or the various physical things you can have, though that is wrapped up underneath it. What he speaks to, though, is that there's a system of beliefs that this world holds dear, and all of it's contrary to the Word of God. That's what he's talking about. There's this ideology, a worldview, a love of this age that the unbeliever has, the world has, in other words. It's the same system of beliefs and values that Satan promotes each and every day. He's behind every bit of it. It's all this contrast between what's true and what's the lie. 
And so if you're the one who's given over to a love of the world, what he's talking about is that you value what the world values. You love the things they love. You believe the same things they do. You pursue the same things they do. Ultimately, you just embrace the lie rather than the truth. It has consequences, right? That's the same thing Paul says in Romans 1 here. He defines the love of the world in three ways. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh is simply what we would call sin. It is that willful, deliberate perversion of all that God calls good. It's not this comprehensive list of sins. Rather, it's just this blanket statement that takes all of them and lumps them together because it's part and parcel to who you are in your flesh in rebellion to your maker. The lust of the eye speaks towards that desire, that insatiable desire that mankind has in which they lust after the things of this earth, which are fading away and perishable rather than their creator, which is internal. But it's more than just a covetousness. It's more than a materialism. It's that place within you that craves and hungers and thirsts after fulfillment in the creation rather than the creator. It's a never-ending search for more, and it's whether it's found through amassing treasures or it's amassing all those different things that the human heart just simply values. Could be popularity, could be power, could be all sorts of different things because it's born out of the system of beliefs that the world loves. The concern is always about living the best life now. Finally, the boastful pride of life is nothing more than failing to realize that everything you have is from God himself. It's that aspect of man which you do not recognize him as creator. You do not give him thanks, right? Same thing Paul says. But it's that prideful arrogance that lifts up the self as if you are your own God. You control your fate. You control your destiny. You are the one who worked so very hard for everything that you have. Ultimately, it's what puts man at the center of the universe rather than God himself. And the Apostle John just says that this whole system of beliefs and values, everything that goes contrary to the word of God, what God has revealed, is fading away, but that the one who does the will of the Father will live forever. This is why we hit this so hard from the pulpit for pretty much every time we gather. At least in one way or another, we hit this reality so hard. It's because everything in this world is doomed to go away. It's... (laughs) The value system that Satan pushes, beloved, do you realize that that it's all going away? It's nothing more than the mark of unbelief to buy into that system. And it may not be a damnable unbelief, meaning it may not be an unbelief that lands you in hell, but it is an unbelief that buys into the lies of the age. It doubts the very promises of God. It distrusts the very word of God. It questions the goodness of God, and it certainly casts aspersions on God's faithfulness. It has implications, in other words. But it's all born out of a world that rejects God and is given over to folly. The foolish, darkened heart and mind is always trying to convince you that the things of this world and the things they believe, the things they hope in and love, actually matter. But do they? The Apostle John just frankly says that the love of the Father is not within the one who loves this world because it can't be. They're two disparate ends of the spectrum. They'll never intersect. They're two completely different worlds, if you will. What it boils down to, though, is that the love of the world is born out of a hatred for God. That's 
the real reality, if you will, behind the scenes. Well, turn with me now to John 3, and I want to just show you this. This is John 3.16 and following. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? It's that, that famous passage that everybody quotes, but so many of us just don't read the broader context of what he says here. Again, John 3.16 through to verse 21. The Apostle John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's where most stop, right? It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And if you didn't stop at the last verse, that's where you stop. Because it's still pretty positive. But notice what he continues to say. He who believes in him is not judged, being Christ, the one who believes in Christ. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, <coughs> excuse me, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or made in God. This is ultimately a terrifying passage if you're the one who rejects the God of this universe because it just simply exposes the heart. But it exposes the heart of all mankind. He says, the one who does not believe in Jesus Christ, the one who rejects the light, in other words, does so for two very explicit reasons, and they are very, very illuminating. First, uh, first, verse 19 tells us that the unbeliever loves the darkness rather than the light, which is simply to say that the atheist or the unbeliever loves his sin and hates Jesus Christ. That's the reality. That there's, there's no middle ground. There's no other option here. That's the reality. You either love Christ and hate sin, or you love sin and hate Christ. You can't have it both ways, in other words. You can't serve two masters. So the question is, which is it for you? But moving on, look at what he says in verse 20. He says, the one who rejects Jesus Christ does so, why? He does so out of fear. He does so out of fear that his evil deeds will be exposed as he comes into the light. He doesn't reject God on intellectual grounds, does he? He doesn't reject God because he believes what he's really doing is good and moral and true and right. He doesn't reject God because he believes that he can ultimately even get away with it at the end of all of his days. He rejects God because he's afraid to come into the light. He flees, he scurries under the rock to hide in the darkness because he knows the moment that he steps into the light, all of his deeds will be laid bare and exposed before God. Everything that's brought into the light will be made known. All of it will come out. And the real folly of it is that he doesn't go to the one place that he can actually go to to find relief and freedom and forgiveness. The very place he rejects and tries to run from is the very place that he should go. Instead, he thinks he can hide from God. But where will this man go that God will not pursue him? Can the mountains hide him from the penetrating gaze of the God who sees all? Can the depths of the ocean protect him from the God who is present everywhere? 
Can the mountains hide him, even if the rocks crumble upon him? Can a man's own thoughts even be hidden from the God who knows all things? All right, this is the same reality David speaks of elsewhere in the Psalms, but the simple answer that we know to this is no. We can't hide from God. He says, ultimately, the man of darkness is a marked man. God will bring him to the light one way or the other. Will, I love you, brother. You, you're just like, yes, he will. Because you're just like I am. You, you were this man of darkness. And God dragged you into the light. And praise him for that. How beautiful is that? When God just takes a sinner and lifts him up and says, no, you are no longer going to be bound in darkness. You're going to be into the light. And it's painful, right? It's hard. But it's a good pain. But this is ultimately where I turn to you if you're the one who denies the existence of God. If you reject all of this and you say, I still don't want it. I want to warn you. For one, you and I both know it's a front. Right? At, at this point, I, I look back at my previous life and I'm like, what an idiot. I can see it very, very clearly at this point because it was just bound up in stupidity. But I know better. And I know that no matter what excuses you may use, I'm the guy who makes you very uncomfortable because I was exactly where you are today. And I'm looking at you and saying, you're not going to get away with it. You're not going to fool me. You can't. It's a front. But you and I also both know that at the end of all days, unbelief will just simply be a thing of the past. It will be eradicated, in other words. There will be no atheists in hell. That's the third and final act of our story today. Act three, atheism eradicated. I'm going to simply summarize this quickly because we're coming down to the end of time here, but Romans 2 reveals this reality. It says, God has been exceedingly patient and kind for those who do not repent. He says that God's patience and kindness is not without a reason, ultimately. It's not designed for us to continue to live in rejection of God, but it's also not designed for us to continue to live in rebellion to him. His patience towards us is designed for one explicit reason, and it's for our repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Day by day, breath by death, breath, God has given you another moment, all that you may repent and turn from death to life. That's the very simple point. But he also tells us that God's patience and kindness is not without limit, meaning it can be exhausted. And you know just as well as I do that from the moment you came into this world, you have an expiration date, right? Every single one of you will go the same way of the man who went before you, which is death. And then you will go to judgment when your time is up. You might try to keep yourself healthy. You might try to do all the different things in this world that you can do to you know, build yourself a nice nest egg or keep your finances secure. At the end of the day, it's all meaningless because you will still die and you will still face judgment. Your own heart testifies to that. You can't escape it. You can't shrug it off. But know this. Romans 2 also says that each and every moment that you continue to delay you are only storing up more and more and more wrath for yourself on the day that the righteous judgment of God will be revealed against all mankind. You cannot tilt the scales in your favor by doing good. You cannot tilt the scales by even coming to church today. None of that will make a lick of difference. 
If your faith and hope is not in Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures, everything you do, literally, is just a glorious sin that God will now judge with the fullness of his divine wrath upon you. And it says all those different things are just stacking more and more wrath against you. That's terrifying. If you, if you hear all of that and you somehow think that you're going to go to hell with just the rest of everybody else and party it up, you're a fool. <laughs> you want to raise your fist and complain against God? You want to pretend as if all the reasons you reject him are born out of rationalism? You want to live a double life where you come on a Sunday morning, but the rest of the week you're just a hell-bound person because you don't really care? You want to live your best life now? Fine. I mean that. Live it up. This is the best you've got. What comes next is a never-ending stream of God's wrath poured out directly upon you. But make no mistakes. At the end of all of that, what you'll do, along with all the saints, is that you will still bow the knee and you will still confess that he is Lord. That's the reality. You'll praise God even for his righteous judgment and wrath being poured out on you. So when David tells us, the fool in his heart says, there is no God, this is all the reason behind it. This is why. Whether you reject his existence because you wanted to think you do so rationally, whether you want to live as if God doesn't exist at all and that he doesn't really care what you do, you're still going to bow the knee to your maker. You're still going to confess with your lips that Christ is Lord. That reality should terrify those who don't believe, but I know the darkened heart and mind well enough to know that you, some of you might still hear that and just scoff and say, whatever. Beloved, there will be no scoffing on that day. Every mouth will be closed. There will be no laughing, no derision, none of that. Every mouth will be closed. The antidote is not through more scoffing, more delaying, more hiding from the light, more equivocating, or whatever else that we are so good at doing. The antidote to being a fool is ultimately to embrace, to embrace the fear of the Lord. And the reason for that is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, perhaps you're here today and you find yourself described in one way or another. You may be the intellectual atheist, as you would call yourself, just like I did. You believe that your insight, your rational mind has helped you climb above the fray of religion. But I ask you just to be honest with yourself. Just be honest. You have your doubts. You know that just as well as I do, you wonder. May I suggest to you that it's simply because God has stamped eternity on your heart. That day by day, he's calling you to repent and trust in the work of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and find him to be your only hope in life and death. God has made himself known to you. God has revealed himself, and if, especially if you're hearing this sermon or many of the other sermons that have been preached here, there will be no excuse on that last day. 
Instead of finding all the ways you can hide and scramble, just simply come into the light and let your deeds be exposed because you'll find that when that happens, God is so incredibly merciful that rather than continue to shake his finger at you as if you're some bad stepchild, he will now adopt you into his, his family as a beloved son or daughter if your hope and faith is in Jesus Christ. He doesn't cast you out, in other words, and reject you and banish you if you come to him in faith and trust. That's the amazing reality of why we call every bit of it grace. You don't have to somehow clean yourself up before you come before God. So whether you're the intellectual atheist or the lazy atheist, the solution is the same for you. Come now for the first time. Come before your maker. Admit your guilt. Trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. If you're the practical atheist, my suggestion to you is that through all the midst of what you might be doing and living a lie, that you just, again, be honest with yourself. If your life bears little to no resemblance of what it actually means to be a Christian, one who hopes and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, lay it all bare. We can actually work with that. You just dump everything out of the table and you say, look, this is a hot mess of garbage. You know what? We can look at the garbage and say, okay, let's, let's clean it up. We'll point you back to Christ. We'll point you back to the one who is merciful to sinners, who is able to heal the sick and lift up the brokenhearted. We'll point your eyes back to the author and finisher of the faith and we'll say, trust in him. Trust in him. At some point, you forgot all that and you left it all behind. But the point that we would say to you over and again is you can't serve two masters. It just doesn't work that way. Again, you will either love Christ and hate sin or you will hate sin and love, or you will love sin and hate Christ. So every bit of what we would do with you is just say, how do we come back to the scriptures and say, we know that our love of Christ is sure. You put your faith and hope in the gospel. It's the same exact solution as the atheist. You come back to Christ. Now, if you're the one who has come to accept Christ. I know that's not a very good Calvinist statement of me, but if you love the Lord and you've come to put all of your hope and trust in him, can I just ask you that today you go home and you reflect upon all of this and you just give the Lord an incredible amount of thanksgiving. That you would look upon all the ways that he has freed you from the bondage and slavery to sin, that he has freed you from his wrath, that he has set upon you his love. This whole sermon described you at one point. Every bit of it described you. It described me. It described anybody who places their hope and faith in Jesus Christ at one point. You and I were the fools. And yet God took a fool and made him a wise man. And he did so through his beloved son. So as you and I just simply reflect upon this season, as we call it, the Advent season, remember where your hope is. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which you and I are the foremost. Rejoice in that. How beautiful is that good news? Let your hope continue to grow and inform everything you do. Let your life be one of purpose and gratitude for the greatness of God giving you mercy, but all that he has called you to do in this world. 
but especially bring yourself to a hope and a redemption of all things because we know that just as surely as Christ came into the world the first time, he shall indeed come again and set all things right and redeem you to the fullest sense of what that means. Keep on running the race. Let go not only of the sins that so easily trip you up, but all the things that don't really matter, all the things that are born out of a love for this world, all the things that hinder you, in other words. In all of it, you're going to be considered a fool in this world. Who cares? Right? Who cares? The cross is foolishness to a world that's perishing, but to us it is the wisdom of God. Let your master decide who the fool is at the end of the day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though there were many hard, hard words today, that if we place our faith, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, forgiveness of sins, that we can actually have that. It is mind-blowing to me that you would even look upon us and forgive us, that you would be so kind as to see us in all of our foolishness and rebellion and sin, and that you would send your son, who is the complete opposite of all of that, to die in our place, to redeem us, to bring about new affections and loves, a new direction. And Father, so I pray that you would grant these people wisdom, that you would lift up their hearts, that they may see Jesus all the more each and every day of their lives, that they may see that there is purpose and meaning to their life. And even though that life is very, very hard, it is not without much hope in our blessed Savior. Oh, we thank you that you are so merciful to us. Pray as everyone goes home this day that we would recall that mercy, that we would not forget it, that we would walk with purpose. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.